welcome to the first ever episode of Book Girl Wasted. My name is Nate Weldon, and I'm going to be your host. Originally, I started this podcast back in 2016, but I've since decided to refresh the original episodes and add some new content. A little about me, I'm a librarian, and I'm obsessed with YA literature, which I feel like is decent enough qualifications to be hosting a YA lit-focused podcast. Now, if you don't agree, well, then you'll probably want to stop listening. Uh, I want to clarify that this podcast is marked as explicit, and that's because when it comes to language, fuck is probably just about my favorite word. I make no apologies, but my mom likely will. Now, this season on Book Girl Wasted, I'm going to take a look at the iconic YA novels of the past two decades. Each episode will pit two books of the same genre against each other to see how they live up to their iconic status. When I was building the list for these books, I wanted to choose YA novels that really stood out, not just in terms of popularity, but also in quality. If you don't agree with any of my choices, or you think I should have reviewed a different book, I'm all ears. And I mean that in like a placating sort of way, I don't actually care. I mean, this is my podcast after all. To a series, I'm only going to be considering the first book. So anything that comes after, any new information that might be revealed that could possibly change my opinion is not going to be discussed. First impressions matter. For this episode, I'm going to take a look at two of YA's most iconic fantasy novels. There were so many good choices to choose from, and I hope to look at some of those other contenders down the line. But for right now, let's see who wins in a fight between City of Bones by Cassandra Clare and Throne of Glass by Sarah J. Moss. Each of these titles is a champion of their genre, and I'm here to figure out which title truly reigns supreme. So without further ado, let the battle begin. First published in March of 2007, City of Bones is considered one of the most notable fantasy books in YA lit. The author, Cassandra Clare, has caused a lot of controversy over the years. Both of our authors today had a hand in fanfiction before they were published, but I'm not really here to weigh in on the plagiarism discussion or any of the other content besides the first book. Now, City of Bones was originally the first in a planned trilogy, but due to its monstrous success, a sequel trilogy was penned. And in case the money from that wasn't enough, Claire then went on to publish a prequel trilogy, another spin-off trilogy, and multiple other spin-off novels or novellas that are all set in the same world. Uh, this, of course, led to a not-so-successful movie and a slightly better television series. Honestly, I don't even think J.K. Rowling has that much of a hard-on for her own work, so I really think Cassandra Clare might need to venture out a bit. Anyway, the story is centered around our self-deprecating, pretentious, and let's be honest, downright annoying heroine Clary Frey, and damn it if I haven't already given away my feelings on this. At the beginning of the book, Clary is being courted, and quite unsuccessfully I might add, by her best friend Simon Lewis. She then meets our hero, our mysterious, jaded, badass, and supposedly sexy teenager, Jace Whalen. And while Simon and Jace serve as romantic rivals in this book, it is clear that there's really no contest at all. And I want to get this pseudo-love triangle out of the way, like, first thing, because it's so useless, forced, and complete and utter bullshit. I say this because the first few chapters are literally just Simon's infatuation with Clary, him pining for her, and going to such lengths as hiding in the bushes of her mother's friend's house 
just so he can make sure she is okay. That's like, that's stalker lover level behavior. I, I can't condone that. And then shortly after, Simon sees like the illustrious Isabel and suddenly forgets Clary even exists. I mean, fuck that. Don't give me multiple chapters of Simon being so in love with Clary he couldn't possibly consider another girl and then have him become completely obsessed with Isabel. I mean, I love Isabel, but she can't be that fucking hot. And then for the rest of the book, Claire just seemingly throws Simon's attention back on Clary whenever she feels the plot might need it. It's super inconsistent and annoying. Like, oops, Jason and Clary are getting a little bit too close again. Better have Simon go cock block that. Like, oh wait, we haven't mentioned how gorgeous Isabel is yet this chapter. Well, send in Simon to gawk at her. I mean, it's just like, it's painful. It's painful. And I won't say too much more about that for now anyway. What I really want to do is take a deep look at the fantasy elements that make up this book. City of Bones is an urban fantasy and has been praised in many ways because of the gritty atmosphere it invokes. But is that praise really just? I mean, so the book is set in New York City, Brooklyn to be exact, and Claire uses a few notable landmarks to help establish this fact. And when we can't really argue that Brooklyn is an urban location, I feel like the city doesn't exactly come alive in the writing. I like half the battle in a fantasy novel is the setting and that doesn't stop just because the setting is urban. Like take Pandemonium for instance. As the setting of the first chapter, it would have been nice to get a little more than two sentences to describe the environment. I mean, it's the starting point of the whole book and the first introduction to the urban fantasy realm. I mean, I get it. It's the first chapter. Claire probably wanted to start with a burst of action, but the thing is, good fantasy interweaves action, character, and setting. These points shouldn't be traded around whenever the author remembers to include them or thinks the readers could use some reminding. In a fantasy novel, the setting should feel like an extension of the characters, and I'm sorry, this could have been set in any city and the plot still would have worked. And as the story goes on, the setting only becomes important whenever it's of use to the plot at hand, which means this is less of an urban fantasy and more of a fantasy that just happens to be set in New York. My apologies, Brooklyn. You might be thinking, well, isn't the city reflected in the characters? And I would say no, God no. In a lot of YA books, you tend to see the same characters over and over again. Clary's search for herself and her independence and Simon's whole like quirky I'm 15 but I drink coffee thing are no different than any other story about a character from bumfuck nowhere. And so, Cassandra Clare, you can't just throw in a subway ride, a few dozen mentions of the East River, and some Chinese takeout, and then expect me to believe this is some great urban novel. Look, I could go on forever about this. I've read this book about a thousand times now, but I also want to talk about the actual fantasy elements. I want to talk about the Shadowhunters. Descended from the offspring of angels, Shadowhunters, or Nephilim, are part angel, part human, and they have the ability to see, track, and kill demons. They enhance their powers by marking themselves with ruins, and the Shadowhunters act as a supernatural police to the downworlders, like vampires, werewolves, fey, warlocks, you know, that kind of stuff. And like any good class system, the Shadowhunters see their downworlders as scum or abominations and, you know, just generally not worthy of their association. And while this gives us a lot of room to explore metaphors for race and minority relations, it's just it's in no way subtle. I mean, it works, but there are these supernatural characters and there's a lot of room to explore these moral issues, but we don't actually get to see it as much as I think we should. 
and that can be both good and bad in, in a fantasy story, but City of Bones is mostly a white fantasy story. It does a little bit better than Throne of Glass in its treatment of minority characters, but I mean that, like, I mean a little, a little better. And so I would like to see a story that's mostly white try to actually tackle some of these issues because otherwise I think it's just feeding into the problem. And of course, while the Shadowhunters are busy dealing with all of the race wars, City of Bones also introduces a larger political system through the Clave, the Circle, and the Silent Brothers. It's a lot of powerful forces with powerful beliefs that make for great conflict. My only wish is that the Circle wasn't so morally corrupt, otherwise we might have even better tension as our characters grow and make decisions. It would have been really great to see Clary experience a circle whose ideologies weren't completely villainous so that as an outsider to this world, you know, she would have been forced to make really tough decisions instead of just easy ones. You know, and if we add this up, we've got part angels, vampires, magical cups, uh, a creepy mute dude who can see inside your brain, you know, the, the stelles that permanently mark up your body, and, you know, there's a whole whack of demons and other demon races, I think, maybe possibly zombies. I, I don't know, am I forgetting anything? That's, that's already quite a lot. But thankfully, this is really where Claire comes through for the reader because the actual fantasy helmet here is so interesting and it really helps carry the story a lot better than the characters do. With that being said, I want to circle, pun intended, back to the conversation about love interests. I've read a lot of YA books recently that are trying to set themselves apart by forgoing the romance, and I just gotta say I'm not a fan. Look, I like to think I'm a feminist and active in my community, but to be honest, I really enjoy a good romance subplot, and I think when done well, it can add a lot to a book. It makes me feel really sad to see so many reviews and comments that trash the romance element, especially in fantasy and sci-fi. And to those people, I say, bah fucking humbug. Just let those authors tell the stories they want to tell, and if they happen to have a little love, then bring it on. And that means you, Jace Whalen. Oh, Jace, where do I even start? I mean, not with the fact that the end of this book suggests that you are Clary's brother. Let's leave that for later. And... Also not with your obvious unresolved anger and abandonment issues. I mean, can we all just agree to call a spade a spade here and acknowledge that Jace is the ultimate fuckboy of YA? That cocky attitude can only take you so far. His swagger and standoffish behavior grow tired fast. But he does have these tender moments, like in the garden with Clary, where you really start to look forward to seeing all of his walls come down. It's just so precious. And personally, if I were dealing with a guy like that in real life, I would have walked away a long time ago. But I do see how he served to draw Clary out of her shell and encourage her self-confidence. I understand that this is a series, but the revelation that Jace is actually her brother at the end, I mean, we all know he's not, but still, it's, it's supposed to hit us hard because we've been buying into them as a couple, but Jace's whiplash moods and the lack of development in the first book kind of made me wish they actually were siblings. I mean, Clary deserves a lot better, and oh god, did I actually just say that? I'm taking Clary's side. Yep, okay, we need to wrap this up. Stats. I think I'm going to call that it for City of Bones. I know that there's a lot more left to cover, and honestly, I can make an entire podcast out of this series alone. But we wouldn't have time for our next book, and I really, really, really want to move on to Throne of Glass. In the second half of the episode, we're going to take a look at the YA fantasy icon Throne of Glass by Sarah J. Moss. 
first published on fanfiction.net, Throne of Glass was later taken down and released as a complete novel in 2012. In the lead-up to its publication, a series of novella prequels were published and eventually bound in The Assassin's Blade. But since Throne of Glass wears the mark of book number one, that's the book we're discussing. There are five more sequels in the completed saga, and though there are whispers of movies that have come out over the years, nothing has come to fruition yet, though fingers are still crossed. Unlike Cassandra Clare, Sarah J. Moss has managed to step outside the world of Throne of Glass to give us more adult content in the A Court of Thorns and Roses series, and she recently published House of Earth and Blood, which is the first in the Crescent City series. But what you're probably wondering, or likely already know, is why the story was published on fanfiction.net to begin with. What could Throne of Glass possibly be a fanfiction of? Well, according to Moss, she got the idea for the book when pondering the story of Cinderella and asking herself what if the fabled princess-to-be was actually at the ball to kill the prince instead. And of course, we all know what happens next is no Cinderella story. Enter our glorious new heroine and badass assassin, Selena Sardothian. Like Clary Frey, she can be a little pretentious and annoying, but self-deprecating she is not. The way I see it, you either love Selena or hate her. There's not much middle ground here. You probably notice that every other character is designed to get a specific reaction, but your feelings for Selena are totally up for grabs in that first chapter, and I fucking love it. Like Most authors are gunning for that really great first introduction, but Moss was just like, fuck it, this is Selena, take her or leave her. And if I were doing this in anything other than a podcast medium, this would be like the appropriate moment for some haters gonna hate or T-Swift style shake it off gif. Gif? Oh, fuck. I'm a gif person, okay? Leave me alone. Obviously, I've made no secret that I immensely prefer Selena to Clary, and you may be thinking, well, that's no fair, you're biased. First, I'm going to remind you of the rules I laid out in my intro. This is my podcast, what I say goes. Second, calm your tits, I'm not that shallow. The first topic I want to discuss is the competition for the King's Champion, aka our sole reason for having a plot. I'm just going to come right out and say it, and this whole thing is complete and utter bullshit. And honestly, it's hard to decide where to even start. I mean, the fact that the king held this super secret competition in the middle of his castle and no one was the wiser, or that he didn't even stick around long enough to watch the damn thing. He laid out some weak-ass rules and then up and disappeared until the very end of the book. WTF. You can't give me this meticulous, dreadful, power-hungry king who is obsessed with his dark and evil plans and then tell me he trusted anyone but himself to monitor the whole thing. I mean, like half the shenanigans Selena got into wouldn't have even happened if he'd been around. And yes, okay, we do learn in later books that there was a reason for this, but like I said, we're judging on first books alone. There will be no writing yourself out of a bad plot point by using the sequels in this podcast. Also, the whole shebang for the king's champion is supposed to be so that he can hire a new assassin, but can I just point out that they, like, have to kill zero people during this competition? I mean, I get that they need to prove their physical and mental abilities, but you'd think at least one of the requirements would be proving their actual worth as an assassin. Some of these guys are just warriors or military men and dudes who are really strong. Big muscles do not maketh a stone-cold killer. Look, I'm sorry here, but there's just no way that the king didn't have them prove he could kill with efficiency before he hired them. It's just bullshit. I mean, I've been on tougher job interviews than that. 
And sick as it is, we all know that the king's got a dungeon full of prisoners that he wants executed. And I get that Moss probably didn't write this in because it would have put the reader in a tough spot with Selena. We all know she's killed people, but up until this point, we haven't really seen it. So if Moss wants us and the other characters to forgive her, then it's probably best to keep the murdering for later. But still, the king could have at least asked. This brings me to my next topic, the supporting characters. There are really only three that I think are worth talking about in terms of Selena's character development at this point in the game. We have Kale Westfall, our handsome and stoic captain of the guard, Dorian Havillard, our equally handsome and charming crown prince of Adderlin, and Nehemia Yicker, the so-called princess of Ilway. Kale and Dorian are set up as love interests, but they don't really compete against each other, which is actually quite refreshing. They're close friends, and though we do see Selena put a strain on that friendship, it's really kind of nice that, you know, they just remain being friends. And I do find it hilarious that in this book, Selena is from Terrasen, a kingdom that is colonized, and by that I mean virtually wiped out by Adderlin. And Dorian is the son of the man responsible for slaughtering her people and her family, and Kale serves as the captain of the king's guard. Also, I mean, he's like 12 years old. How, how is that possible? How did he get that job? It makes no sense. But it also means he's a loyal servant to the crown. I mean, how am I supposed to believe that she both trusts and holds affection for both of these boys? I know this is pretty much the plot of Tower of Dawn, just with like a small character substitution, but... Come on, really? This early in the game, she has that much trust for them? It's already proven that she holds a grudge, so I'm sorry, but I just don't buy how easy her friendships come, especially with Dorian. And yeah, these boys are charming and considerate in their own way, but I would have liked to see a slower thaw of Selena's trust. And if you still want to throw in some romance, maybe one of the other champions would do. How about someone she has some chemistry with? Maybe Nox? I don't know, just a suggestion. Of course, there is her relationship with Nehemia. I think Selena really sees a lot of herself in Nehemia because, like her, this princess's kingdom has been colonized and she's been brought to Adderlin and the Glass Castle. She's ripped away from everyone she loves. Like, the threat of her death and the death of her people is constantly looming over her. And honestly, the first time I read the book, I didn't care for her that much. And it really hurts because I felt like she had so much potential that was never quite tapped into. But when I read the book again and when I reflect back on the story, it just dawns on me how awesome she is and how it really sucks that Moss didn't fully explore her. Moss has been called out many times over the years about the whiteness of her books and the treatment of her characters of color. I think I'll probably post a bonus content on the blog to discuss this more, but it's definitely an important topic and I want to open it up for discussion. I just don't think I have the time to do it justice in this episode. I think Nehemia deserves her own entire, you know, podcast episode. So I also want to dedicate subsequent seasons to talk about these kinds of issues. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Now, we all know that Selena is playing the long con with some serious secrets up her sleeve. But for this first book, it appears to be Nehemia who is controlling the board. And yeah, the king has this like magic ring or whatever, but it's Nehemia who manages to sneak around that magic and keep her secrets concealed, even from Selena. Which brings me to the ultimate point about these supporting characters, and that's that I would not object to some prequels featuring Nehemia, nor would I object to reading fanfics that solely devote to her and Selena. I'm talking romance, romance, whatever kind of manse there is. If you have links, send them my way, please. And finally, because I do need to make a true comparison to City of Bones here, let's talk about the fantasy. 
If City of Bones is an urban fantasy, then Throne of Glass might be verging on the edge of high fantasy. It definitely goes in that direction in the later books, but for now, it's still a little bit reserved. The world exists in a realm outside of our own and has the markings of an epic story. We have magic, fairies, and an entire castle made of glass. One of the things I want to pick apart is something that is so often used in fantasy novels, and that's the deus ex machina. Now, I've read some debate about whether or not Nehemia's last-minute save to help Selena win the competition falls into this category. On the one hand, she's a helpful character who has been shown to possess magic, but on the other, the king is standing right there. She's in full shot of everyone when she does this. The way I read the scene, it didn't exactly feel like things were happening in secret. One second, Selena is seriously wounded, and then later she's fine? Given the king's reputation and the clear use of magic here, he would have been more than likely to disqualify Selena. And as a plot point or use of deus ex machina, it kind of sucks. Which leads me to believe it's not. If you're a fan of Tolkien, then you might know where I'm going with this. I would suggest that Selena's last minute save was actually an act of eucatastrophe. And while a lot of people say there might not be a difference, I would argue against that, and I repeatedly have in an academic arena. The most important thing to note is that deus ex machina happens. Eucatastrophe is earned. If I were the judge, and in this case I am, I would say that by this point in the novel, Selena has definitely earned a last minute save. Whether or not the execution was great is another matter. But I do feel like the sudden save didn't come out of nowhere. We were really building toward it. And I could go on and on about Throne of Glass. I love this book, like fucking love it. But rather than bore you with my voice, I think it's time that I started to wrap this up. Today we've looked at two very different distinct sets of fantasy, and maybe it's not quite fair to compare them, but hey, they're both icons. They accomplish their objectives in completely different ways and have wildly varying attitudes about how their protagonists should be portrayed. Yet, these battles come down to a single winner, not because of any official rules, but because I say so. City of Bones has great world building and fantasy elements. The first time I read it, it was so unique. This book came to me when I was in high school and I really needed something that wasn't contemporary. It was arguably the most successful novel and series in YA literature and probably has more notoriety than Throne of Glass. But success doesn't always mean better quality. Throne of Glass completely changed the game of YA for a lot of readers and writers. The evolution of the series is one of the most magnificent things I have seen in publishing in the last 10 years. But this competition is all about first books and iconic YA fantasy, and if I'm being honest with myself, I could only see myself recommending one of these first novels 10 or even 20 years from now. And if it wasn't already obvious, that book is Throne of Glass. City of Bones may be the notable one now, but I truly believe Selena has the power to outlive us all. So there you have it, your new fantasy icon, according to me. There's a lot of material that went into making this episode, and if you're interested, you can read more on the blog bookgirlwasted.wordpress.com. You can also check out my Twitter and Instagram at bookgirlwasted. Next episode, I'll be reviewing the YA contemporary icons Eleanor Park and Anna and the French Kiss. We'll see you then.